good morning again. Let's go to the Lord in a short word of prayer. Father, as we come to your word this morning, we pray that we would be those who would not resist your word. Father, I pray that uh, you would, by your spirit, help me to speak what is true. Father, that our hearts would not be hardened, but they would be softened to the truth of your word. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, for the most part, I think we all love competitions. Whether it is a football match, a science fair, the Olympics, a debate, a board game or a card game, a boxing or a wrestling match, a, a singing competition, a talent show, there's probably some type of competition that you enjoy. A competition is simply an effort to determine who is the best at a certain activity, who is the best. They might be battles of strength, battles of wit, they might be battles of skill, but the goal of the competition is to figure out who is going to come out on top. Who is the strongest or who is the most powerful? Who is the smartest? Who is the most skilled? Who is the greatest? Go ahead and turn with me to Exodus chapter 6. We are going to be in Exodus chapter 6, starting in verse 28 this morning, and we're going to go all the way through chapter 8, verse 19. Exodus 6, 28 through 8, 19. And we're going to turn our attention this week to the plagues that God inflicted on the nation of Egypt. I think plagues that are going to be very familiar to you. If you grew up around the church, you probably grew up learning about these plagues. But as we begin this study of the plagues, we're going to be in the plagues for our next few weeks in Exodus. I want you to see that the plagues are not just God's judgment on Egypt, though they are God's judgment on Egypt. They are not just the way that God will rescue his people from the nation of Egypt, though they are. The plagues are a competition between God and all the powers of Egypt. The plagues are a competition between God and all the powers of Egypt. Pharaoh really acts as a representative in the text in the Bible for all of Egypt. The gods of Egypt, the military and the economic might of Egypt, the people of Egypt, and of course the ruler of Egypt. Who is the most powerful? Who is in control? Who is the greatest? Well, that is what is at stake in the plagues. Remember Pharaoh's question from a couple of weeks ago in Exodus chapter 5, verse 2, when Moses and Aaron first come to him and say that God told, tells him to let his people go, and Pharaoh responded, who is the Lord that I should obey him? As we said a couple of weeks ago, and as we're going to see this week, God is about to start emphatically answering that question. God will show that he is the ruler of all the earth, he is the greatest, and he is the most powerful. In fact, the, the main idea from the text this week is that God is the one true God, and he is unrivaled in greatness and power. God is the one true God, and he is unrivaled in greatness and power. So I have two points for today's sermon for you, two points. The first is the pattern of the plagues. And the second is the purpose of the plagues. The pattern of the plagues and the purpose of the plagues. So first we are going to look at the pattern of the plagues. And as I've said for a couple of weeks now, because we are studying such a long section this morning, such a, a large chunk of scripture, 
We do not have time to read the whole thing like we normally do. So let me encourage you again to read ahead. We put it in the bulletin what we're going to preach the next week so you might read ahead. So I'd encourage you to do that while we're in the plagues. I'd encourage you to do that each and every week. But though we don't have time to read everything this morning, we are going to read all of Exodus chapter 6, verse 28 through 7, 13. Uh, and we're going to do that because these verses kind of set the pattern for the plagues that will follow. So I'm going to read this section, highlight a few things, and then summarize the first three plagues for you, because we're going to be studying the first three plagues this morning. So follow along as I start reading in Exodus chapter 6, verse 28. On the day the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, he said to him, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, everything I am telling you. But Moses replied in the Lord's presence, since I am such a poor speaker, how will Pharaoh listen to me? The Lord answered Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and Aaron, your brother, will be your prophet. You must say whatever I command you, then Aaron, your brother, must declare it to Pharaoh so that he will let the Israelites go from his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. Pharaoh will not listen to you, but I will put my hand into Egypt and bring the military divisions of my people, the Israelites, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the Israelites from among them. So Moses and Aaron did this. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh tells you, perform a miracle, tell Aaron, Take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh. It will become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and did just as the Lord had commanded. Aaron threw down his staff before Pharaoh and his officials, and it became a serpent. But, when, but then Pharaoh called the wise men and sorcerers, the magicians of Egypt, and they also did the same thing by their occult practices. Each one threw down his staff, and it became a serpent. But Aaron's staff swallowed their staffs. However, Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had said. So remember where we are in the book of Exodus. If you've been here, you probably know if you're new, uh, God has promised that he is going to free his people from their slavery in Egypt. The people of Israel have been enslaved to the people of Egypt for a few hundred years by now or a lengthy period of time. Their oppression has gone worse. Uh, the first time Pharaoh was asked to let the people of Israel go, he refused and made their lives harder. Oh, and so that brings us to the text for this week where God is going to now deliver his people through miraculous signs, the plagues. And the first thing that I want you to see here is that Moses and Aaron are called to, to simply speak to Pharaoh what the Lord has commanded them. You're going to see this throughout the plagues. You see it in several places, even in our text this morning. So in chapter 7, verse 1, the Lord says, see, he says this to Moses. See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and Aaron, your brother, will be your prophet. You must say whatever I command you, then Aaron, your brother, must declare it to Pharaoh. And to say that Moses is like a God to Pharaoh is not to say that Moses is a God, but to simply say that he is speaking with the power and authority of God. God has so invested Moses with his authority that what Moses speaks, God will do. So Moses and Aaron will speak at God's direction and under God's authority. But again, as we see in verses 3 and 4 of Exodus 7, God will harden Pharaoh's heart 
and Pharaoh will not listen. And we're not going to discuss this morning uh, this fact that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. God did harden Pharaoh's heart, but if you want a full discussion of that, you can go back to our sermon from a few weeks ago from Exodus 4, 18 through 31. We'll probably discuss that idea a little bit more as we continue through the, the plagues in the upcoming weeks. But for our purposes this morning, know that the pattern of the plagues, the pattern that the plagues would follow, is that Pharaoh would not listen. His heart would be hard. He would not listen to the words that Moses and Aaron bring. He would not let the people go. And as we see in verse 3 of chapter 7, because he would not listen, well, more plagues would come. It was his hardness of heart that led to more plagues coming. And so though the encounter between Moses and Aaron that we just read about in Exodus 7, 10 through 13 is not a plague when they come in and throw down the staff and it becomes a serpent, though that is not a plague, I want you to see that it really sets the pattern for the plagues particularly the first three plagues that we will be examining today. So I want to just draw your attention to a couple of things that we see in this encounter between Moses and Aaron, and then on the other hand, Pharaoh and the magicians of Egypt. But first, I want you to see that God's grace is at work in this encounter between Moses and Pharaoh. This is the second time that Moses and Aaron have visited Pharaoh before any plagues ever come on the nation of Egypt. And God gave Pharaoh two opportunities, two opportunities to listen and obey and let the people of Israel go before he ever brought a plague on the nation of Egypt. The destruction that comes, the destruction that follows that we will read about and study in the next few weeks is due to Pharaoh's own hardness of heart. It's because he would not listen. He would not humble himself. Well, when Moses and Aaron do go into Pharaoh this second time, it seems that he wanted them to perform a miracle. Now, I think Pharaoh's heart was already hard at this point. I mean, we've already seen that his heart was hard. He did not listen back in chapter 5. So I don't think that Pharaoh was asking this in good faith. He's not asking them to perform a miracle in good faith. I think he was most likely intending to put Moses and Aaron to shame. He's going to ask them to perform some sign. He assumes they will not be able to perform some sign and they're going to be humiliated. I think it's also worth noting that though Moses and Aaron do perform a miracle when Pharaoh requests, though this staff turns into a snake, it still does not lead Pharaoh to listen. Pharaoh's problem was not that he did not have enough proof of who God is or who Moses and Aaron were. Pharaoh's problem was he had a heart that had no interest in listening and submitting to the one true God. Well, the same thing is evident in the ministry of Jesus. If you have were here through our, our study through the first third of Luke, you probably remember that despite the miracles and signs that Jesus performed, the many miracles that he did, well, for, for the most part, people refused to believe. They refused to believe that Jesus is God. The problem was their hearts. Friends, you should know that your own doubt 
and your own unbelief is fundamentally a heart problem as well. It's fundamentally a heart problem. Well, in response to Pharaoh's request that Moses and Aaron perform a miracle, they did just what the Lord had commanded them to do. We see in the text that Aaron threw down his staff, just like God commanded, and it became a serpent. In response, we see in Exodus 7, verse 11, Pharaoh called the wise men and sorcerers the magicians of Egypt, and they also did the same thing by their occult practices. Now, what you need to understand is these wise men, these magicians, these sorcerers were something like representatives of the gods of Egypt, something like priests of the gods of Egypt. As we will see, these magicians, these wise men play a prominent role in the first three plagues. And these first three plagues are particularly concerned. I mean, all the plagues are concerned with this, but perhaps the first three plagues are particularly concerned with demonstrating God's superiority over the gods of Egypt, the false gods of Egypt. They are concerned with showing that the God of Israel, that Yahweh is the one true God, the only God, the living God. This is probably why the Nile River was affected in the very first plague. The Nile was viewed as sacred by the Egyptians. It was a source of life. There was a god, perhaps even more than one god, associated with the Nile River. The Egyptians had a god associated with the river. Well, the the text does not tell us exactly how these magicians were also able to make their own staffs turn into serpents. Perhaps they perform some visual trick like a sleight of hand like magicians do today. I mean, the verses do say that it was by their occult practices. So I believe the best explanation is that they were using some sort of demonic power to do what they did. This demonic power is also under God's authority. We've seen in our study of Luke that, that God has authority over all things over the spiritual world as well as the physical world. But I think the best explanation is that they were using some sort of demonic power to do what they did. However, how they did it is not really a big focus of the text. It doesn't really devote much attention to it. And in the end, it's, it's not a very important question for us to dwell on either. The point is that they did, at least for a time. And the, the end result of them being able to, to turn their staffs into serpents is that we see in, in Exodus 7.13 that Pharaoh hardened his heart. It seemed to Pharaoh that his own magicians and his own wise men were just as powerful as Moses and Aaron, which meant by extension that in his mind the false gods of Egypt, the idols of Egypt, were just as powerful as the God of Israel. That's something of the the pattern of the plagues. We're going to come back to this. But I want to briefly show you how the next three plagues, or the first three plagues, follow a very similar pattern to this encounter between Moses and Aaron and Pharaoh when they go in before him and the staff is cast down and turned into a serpent. So be ready to kind of flip back and forth in your Bibles a little bit. So plague one is when the waters of the Nile River are turned to blood. We see in Exodus 7, 16, 
that Moses is told to bring the message from God to Pharaoh that his people, the Israelites, are to be set free to worship him. God tells Moses to tell Pharaoh because Pharaoh has not listened. I am about to strike the waters in the Nile with the staff in my hand and it will turn to blood. This is exactly what happens. Look at Exodus 7, starting in verse 20. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded in the sight of Pharaoh and his officials. He raised the staff and struck the waters in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile was turned to blood. The fish in the Nile died, and the river smelled so bad the Egyptians could not drink water from it. There was blood throughout the land of Egypt. But just as we saw in that first encounter, or I guess the second encounter between Moses and Aaron and Pharaoh, we read in verse 22, But the magicians of Egypt did the same thing by their occult practices. So Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned around, went into his palace, and did not take even this to heart. So the magicians of Egypt, these priests to the, the false gods of Egypt, were able to turn water into blood. And the result was that Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not listen to Moses and Aaron. The second plague follows a similar pattern. Again, God commands Moses exactly what to do. Look at chapter 8, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and tell him this is what the Lord says. Let my people go so that they may worship me. But if you refuse to let them go, then I will plague all your territory with frogs. The Nile will swarm with frogs. They will come up and go into your palace, into your bedroom, and on, and on your bed, into the houses of your officials and your people, and into your ovens and kneading bowls. The frogs will come up on you, your people, and all your officials. This is exactly what happened. Aaron stretched out his staff because Pharaoh would not listen, and frogs came up on the land of Egypt. But again, we see in chapter 8, verse 7, that the magicians of Egypt were able to do the same thing. Well, it is at this point that the pattern of the plagues is slightly interrupted. Now, although the magicians of Egypt are able to produce frogs somehow, we see in chapter 8, verse 8, that Pharaoh asked Moses and Aaron to appeal to the Lord on his behalf to have the frogs removed. And he promises to let the people go and sacrifice to the Lord. And Moses agrees to Pharaoh's request. He goes in and prays to the Lord and asks that the frogs would be removed. And God answers his pray, uh, prayer. And, and all the, the frogs in the land of Egypt that are outside of the river and in these homes, they die. And they go away. Well, it is at this point that the pattern of the plagues resumes. Because we read in chapter 8, verse 15, But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. That brings us to the third and final plague that we will be studying this morning, the plague of gnats. Again, God commands Moses to tell Aaron to stretch out his staff over the land, and the dust of the land will become gnats. And this is exactly what happens. I don't know if you know what a gnat is. We have them where I am from in the United States, in South Georgia. They're something like mosquitoes, except they don't bite. They just like fly around your face the whole time, like into your nose and into your mouth. Uh, I don't know if they're dangerous so much, but they're extremely annoying. And so all the dust of the land of Egypt becomes gnats. 
Well, it is at this point in this third plague that the pattern breaks because we read starting in verse 18 of chapter 8, the magicians tried to produce gnats using their occult practices, but they could not. The gnats remained on people and animals. This is the finger of God, the magician said to Pharaoh. But Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. God had now humbled the magicians of Egypt, the priests of these false gods. They recognized that a power greater than their own was at work. Pharaoh, though, was not humbled. Pharaoh was not humbled. His heart remained hard, and he did not listen, just as the Lord said would happen. So that sets the stage for the plagues that we will continue to study over the, the coming weeks, the plagues that will follow. And so that is the general pattern of the plagues, especially these first three plagues that we have seen today. Moses and Aaron go in. Pharaoh will not listen. A plague comes. Pharaoh's heart is hardened. But now I want to go back through these first three plagues, this opening interaction between Moses and Aaron, and show you God's purpose, God's purposes in all of this. So that takes us to the second point of the sermon, which is the purpose of the plagues. The purpose of the plagues. God actually reveals a few different purposes of the plagues in these verses. If you look back all the way to Exodus chapter 7, verse 4, the first of those purposes that we see is that the plagues were intended as a form of judgment against Egypt. God said, I will put my hand into Egypt and bring the military divisions of my people, the Israelites, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The plagues were acts of judgment against Egypt for their oppression and mistreatment of Israel and also because of Pharaoh's refusal to listen to God's word and let the people of Israel go. I want to give you the the first part of a quote. I'm going to give you the second part later in the sermon, but I want to give you the first part of a quote from a man by the name of J.A. Motyer from his commentary on Exodus. He wrote a commentary on Exodus, and this is what he writes. If, as indeed the case, as is indeed the case, The primary characteristic of the Lord's people is to obey what he has revealed. Then correspondingly, disobedience to the revealed word, in our case the Bible, is the primary offense or the primary sin. On this point, by facing us with the horrific reality of the plagues, the book of Exodus speaks with unmistakable clarity as individuals and to the whole church. What is he saying in that quote? He's saying that God takes sin seriously. Disobeying God's word, which is what sin is, is a serious thing. It is an offense against God, and the horrible reality of the plagues makes it clear just how seriously he takes that. Friends, this is what your sin is. It is a, your own sin is a refusal to listen to the word of the Lord and obey it. If you don't obey it, you're not listening to it. That's what the Bible would tell you. And this is a serious thing in God's eyes. 
Friends, in, in light of Pharaoh's refusal to listen to the word of the Lord, listen to the word of the Lord through Moses, perhaps it would be a good idea for you to go back and ask yourselves, what is it that tempts you to ignore the word of the Lord? What tempts you to ignore the word of the Lord? Notice why Pharaoh did not listen to God in our text. As soon as his magicians turn their own staffs into serpents, he ignores whatever Moses and Aaron have to say. Pharaoh simply did not see God as important enough or powerful enough to listen to. Pharaoh was a, a powerful man, perhaps the most powerful ruler in the world at that time. Pharaoh believed he was in control of his own fate and his destiny. Pharaoh was in many ways his own God, and he was not interested in humbling himself before anyone else. He was not interested in humbling himself before the God of Israel. Friends, what about you? Do you truly believe that God has all authority, even over your own life? That God is a God of all authority. He is the creator of the heavens and earth. He made you and he has authority over you. In your own pride, do you want to direct your own life? To be in charge. To say what it is you get to do and when you get to do it. To not listen to anybody's word but your own. Do you want to hold on to your sin and go your own way? Do you refuse to submit to the Lord? Do you refuse to submit to his word? There's a second reason that Pharaoh refused to listen. It was when he found relief from the plagues. Remember the, the second plague, the plague of frogs? Pharaoh promised to let the people of Israel go if Moses and Aaron would ask the Lord to take the frogs away and if the Lord would take the frogs away. But as soon as the frogs were gone, we read this in chapter 8, verse 15. When Pharaoh saw there was relief, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Friends, how many of you are quick to run to the Lord and seek him in prayer when there are difficult situations in your life? When there is some trial or something that you're wanting, how many of you are quick to run to the Lord? When you need healing, or maybe money, some other favor from the Lord, deliverance from some circumstance that you want deliverance from. And during those seasons of life, maybe you make sure that you are in church every week. You are faithful to pray during those seasons of life. But what about when things are going well? When the crisis passes, does your desire for the Lord and your seeming devotion to him also vanish? Friends, prosperity can be a dangerous thing. One writer put it this way, this relief is worse than the plague for this proud king. This relief is worse than the plague for this proud king. People do not often learn the righteousness of God when granted mercy and favor. And brothers and sisters, trials and, and difficulties are gifts from the Lord to train you in righteousness and train you to rely on him. They are to train you to rely on the Lord. Be careful that relief 
from trials do not lead you to a hardened heart, a self-reliant heart that sees little need for the Lord, to think you are okay just on your own. Be careful in times of prosperity and plenty that your heart is not drawn away, does not lead you to to self-reliance and to kind of a a passive rejection or passive uh, ignoring of the Lord. Consider why the Lord might be bringing trials into your life. Perhaps he is training your heart away from self-reliance. Perhaps he is training you to rely on him. There's one more thing I want you to see about God's judgment in these verses. And that is that the plagues were an act of God's mercy and grace. I want to go back to that quote from J.A. Motyer and give you the second part of it. Here is the second part. The great flood, the destruction of Sodom, and in the New Testament, the striking down of Ananias and Sapphira are all examples of the fact that the Lord sometimes gives a clear demonstration of how he feels and reacts. So how he feels against sin. This is not because he intends on every occasion to act in the same way, but so that we may see into his mind and fashion ourselves according to his serious concerns. The plagues reveal his love of obedience and his revulsion from disobedience or his disgust with disobedience. He is making the point that earthly judgments, the flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, the plagues, well, they are warning signs of God's attitude towards sin. They are clear demonstrations of God's attitude towards sin. He hates sin. God hates sin. And these earthly judgments are also small examples of God's greater judgment that is to come. In his grace, in his mercy, God was warning Pharaoh in Egypt of the consequences of sin. He was warning them of the consequences of not listening to the word of the Lord. He first came and told them to let Israel go without bringing plagues. As we go through the plagues, you will notice that the the plagues get worse over time. By the end of the ten plagues that God brings on Egypt, gnats are going to seem pretty mild. God was warning Egypt of greater consequences to come and providing an opportunity for repentance. Pharaoh's continual refusal to listen to these warnings eventually led to his destruction and the destruction of his entire nation. Friends, so it is for all people who do not listen to God's warnings of the judgment to come. Sometimes when, when Delane and I, we discipline our four children, we tell them we are giving them consequences now to prevent them from experiencing worse consequences later. So if they are to hit one another, we, we may punish them, we will punish them for that. One, because it's wrong for them to hit one another. But also because the consequences for hitting someone else get worse the older that you get. Eventually, you can get thrown into jail for hitting someone else. So the small consequences that we give our children now are intended to train them so that they do not experience larger consequences later. Friends, when you experience consequences for your sin, that is God's kindness to you, warning you of greater consequences to come. 
These small consequences are like warning lights on your car dashboard telling you it is time to take in the car for maintenance before a bigger problem develops. They are warning signs directing you to repent of your sins now because one day God's wrath will be fully poured out on sin. Romans chapter 2, verses 4 through 6. Or do you despise the riches of his kindness, restraint, and patience, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Because of your hardened and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed. He will repay each one according to his works. Friends, if you are here and are not a Christian, know that one day God will judge all sin. If you continue in your sin, if you do not submit, if you do not repent, you are simply storing up wrath for yourself on the day of judgment when God returns to judge the living and the dead. The only way of salvation is to repent of your sins and to place your faith in Jesus Christ. Heed God's warning to you. Heed God's warning. Do not despise his kindness. Repent and believe. Repent of your sins. Place your faith in Jesus Christ. God's judgment is is not the only purpose of the plagues that we see in our text. A second reason for God inflicting the plagues on Egypt was to make his name known. We have looked at that theme often as we have gone through Exodus. We see it again in these verses that a reason for God inflicting the plagues on Egypt was to make his name known. Exodus 7 verse 5. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the Israelites from among them. Exodus 7 17. Here is how you will know that I am the Lord. Watch, I am about to strike the water in the Nile with the staff in my hand and it will turn to blood. When Pharaoh asked Moses to appeal to God for the frogs to be removed, Moses asked Pharaoh when he would like that to happen. He says, Pharaoh, you get to choose when the frogs go away and I'll ask the Lord. Well, here is Pharaoh's reply in Exodus 8 verse 10. Tomorrow, he answered. Moses replied, as you have said, So that you may know there is no one like the Lord our God, the frogs will go away. What happens when the magicians cannot produce gnats? We see in chapter 8, verse 19, that the magicians acknowledge this is the finger of God. The Lord used the plagues to deliver Israel from Egypt, but he could have delivered Israel in any number of ways. God was compassionate to Israel. He was freeing them from their slavery. But that was not the primary purpose of the plagues that God inflicted on Egypt. It was to make God's name, his character, his power, and his glory known to both Egypt and to his own people, the nation of Israel. And that brings us to what I believe is the primary purpose for these first three plagues. And that is for God to demonstrate that he is the one true living God, that he is unrivaled in power and greatness, and that he will triumph over all rivals, to include the gods of Egypt. God is demonstrating that he is the one true living God, that he is unrivaled in power and greatness, and that he will triumph over all rivals to include the gods of Egypt. God was making his name known by demonstrating his superiority, his greatness, his might, How do we see this in our text? 
First, over and over again, Moses points out to us that these plagues were done with the staff of God in his hand or Aaron's hand. I'm not going to point all those instances out, but go back and read through these verses and you will see that the staff is mentioned a number of times. I think it's at least ten times. Remember, we studied this a couple of weeks ago. uh, Throughout Exodus, God's staff that Moses or Aaron have serves as a symbol of God's power. By using the staff, Moses and Aaron were showing it was God's power at work. It was not their power. They were not simply some magicians doing tricks like the magicians of Egypt. They were coming in the power of God. To go back to the opening illustration about competition, the second way, the second way these verses demonstrate God's superiority is by showing that a competition is taking place with Yahweh, the God of Israel on one side, and Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt on the other. So, Exodus 7, 10 and 11. Aaron threw down his staff and it became a serpent, but on the other side, opposed to them, Pharaoh called the wise men and sorcerers, the magicians of Egypt, and they also did the same thing. Exodus 7, 20-22, Aaron struck the waters of the Nile and turned them into blood in front of Pharaoh, but... The magicians of Egypt did the same thing. Exodus 8, verses 6 and 7. When Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt, but the magicians did the same thing. At this point, if it's your first time reading through those verses, you might be tempted to say it looks like an even match. But then we get to Exodus 8, verses 17 and 18. Aaron stretched out his hand with the staff, and when he struck the dust of the land, gnats were on people and animals. All the dust of the land became gnats throughout the land of Egypt. The magicians tried to produce gnats using their occult practices, but they could not. The gnats remained on people and animals. Game, set, match. Competition over. But really, it's not just in the magician's inability to produce gnats that we see God's superiority in these verses. There are hints of it throughout the text. Though the magicians of evil or uh, of Egypt were able to make their staffs turn into serpents, what happened in Exodus 7 verse 12? Aaron's staff, Aaron's serpent, swallowed their staffs. It ate them. And God is greater. Though the magicians are somehow able to turn water into blood and are at least able to produce a few frogs, what is it that they are unable to do? Well, they're unable to save Egypt from the plagues that God had inflicted. Egypt needed them to turn blood back into water. Egypt needed these magicians to get rid of the frogs, not produce more blood and frogs, but they are unable to. The Nile was polluted for a week. Pharaoh has to come to Moses and Aaron and ask for the frogs to be removed. He has to come to Moses and Aaron and ask this. Those magicians and the gods they represented were no match for God. As one writer put it, the supremacy of the Lord exposes Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt as helpless to save. The supremacy of the Lord exposes Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt as helpless to save. Yahweh, the Lord, the one true living God, is the only God who has the power to save. 
Brothers and sisters, what should you take away from all this? I hope it is an obvious point by now, but it is one that is worth repeating. Your God is the God of all power and might. Your God is the only God who is mighty to save. He is supreme and there is no one or no thing that can compare. But Christian, here is what I really want to emphasize to you this morning. If you are here and you are a Christian, your God is mighty to save because he triumphs over all his enemies. He triumphs over all of his rivals. He wins. I'm not sure if you remember back from our our first few weeks through our, our study through Exodus, but I said that the Exodus is a biblical pattern, is the biblical pattern for our redemption, our salvation in Jesus Christ. And we see it again this week. God's victory over Pharaoh, the magicians of Egypt, the gods of Egypt simply point us forward to his greater victories that are to come. This is what the Apostle Paul writes about Jesus' sacrifice on the cross in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. And when you, Christian, were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. Friends, at the the cross, Jesus appeared to be defeated. His enemies had thought that they had gotten the best of him. But the cross was, in fact, Jesus' place of triumph. Jesus purchased our forgiveness at the cross. He took all of God's wrath for your sin on himself. He suffered the penalty of death that you deserved for your sin, for your failure to listen to the word of the Lord. But, but three days later, he rose again, defeating sin and death and ascended into heaven to the Father's right hand, far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion. Brothers and sisters, Jesus triumphed over his enemies and your enemies at the cross and in his resurrection. He triumphed over your greatest enemies. He triumphed over sin and he triumphed over the penalty that you deserve for your sin. The the ultimate penalty of sin, the ultimate curse of sin, death. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where death is your victory, where death is your sting. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, those who are in Christ Jesus have overcome the world. As believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, you share in his victory. You share in his victory over sin and death even now. Sin no longer has dominion over you. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Brothers and sisters, that means that you have the power to fight your sin, to win victory over your sin, because you have at work in you the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. You have at work in you, if you are a Christian, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. You have the Spirit of God who did not just triumph over the gods of Egypt, but overcame sin and death. 
Brothers and sisters, you have been given everything you need for life and godliness. 1 Peter 1.3. You are, 2 Peter 1.3. You are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Romans 8.37. You can walk by the spirit and not the flesh. For although we live in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh. Since the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are powerful through God for the demolition of strongholds. Second Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 and 4. Now, brothers and sisters, we know that though we have the power over sin through Christ Jesus, though he has defeated sin and death, we know that we will not be fully free from sin in this life. We still wrestle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Though we have God's spirit in us, we will doubt. There are going to be times that we give in to temptation. But brothers and sisters, the great hope And the great and certain hope of the Christian faith is that Jesus will return again and fully and finally defeat Satan. He will vanquish his enemies once and for all that he won victory at at the cross. As Christians, we know the end of history. Satan and his forces are defeated and thrown into the lake of fire where where they will be tormented forever and ever. Game, set, match. God wins. God triumphs. Christian, you can persevere in holiness because Jesus has already triumphed over sin and death. You share now, you share even now in his victory. So you can persevere in holiness. You can grow in holiness. And Christian, you can persevere in faith because you know that God will one day finish the job and fully and finally defeat all of his foes. He wins. He is unrivaled in power and greatness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for...